0: Hey guys, it's Sean, and today on the podcast, I sit down with author Lawrence Gonzalez. Now, I originally got introduced to Lawrence from a past guest. That guest was Michael Mobison, and Michael read Lawrence's book, Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why, and said it had such a profound impact on how he thinks about life and how he makes his investment decisions, and to sum up, all of Lawrence's work, what he essentially is interested in is why smart people do stupid things. So he explores some of these crazy survival situations and who makes it out alive and why, and what are the little things they do that compound over time to help them make it out alive. We also dive into another one of Lawrence's books, and that's Surviving Survival, The Art and Science of Resilience. So we're going to cover all of this on the podcast, how to make better decisions, how to handle stress, how to deal with fear, how to bounce back and be more resilient in our own life. And then we also cover Lawrence's writing process, which is really interesting. So if you want a fascinating, wide-ranging conversation, please hit play and enjoy this conversation with Lawrence Gonzalez. Do you have a problem setting and achieving your goals? Well, after personally coaching and interviewing hundreds of high performers on this podcast, I've uncovered that there are three keys to setting and then actually achieving your goals. And as a special gift for listening to this podcast, I want to send you these three secrets absolutely free right now. All you have to do is go to youunleashedcourse.com. That's youunleashedcourse.com or click the link below and I'll email you those three secrets right now. Have you been looking for a new podcast to give you a short burst of daily motivation? If so, check out my other podcast called Momentum Minutes that already has 50-plus episodes. Now, on this podcast, I share the best and most impactful lessons on leadership, personal development, and the foundational principles you need to learn to expand your potential. So check it out today by typing in Momentum Minutes to your favorite podcasting app, or you can go to whatgotyouthere.com. Hey guys, it's Sean, and for the last 15 years, I've been working at the intersection of elite performance, entrepreneurship, and personal development. Now, as a success coach, former professional athlete, entrepreneur, and podcast host, my mission has been helping people discover their untapped potential and live their best life. Now, after being an advisor to Inc's fastest-growing companies, interviewing billionaire business titans, and personally coaching CEOs and executives, I've put together the most impactful tools and exercise into my online personal growth course called You Unleashed. Now, if you've been looking to get access to a course that's going to help you expand your potential to help you overcome your obstacles, cultivate your passion, and create your purpose, then head to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or click the link below to check out my online personal growth course called You Unleashed. Lawrence, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. I am very excited for this conversation to finally come to fruition. I know we've been working on this for a few years, but what I want to start at is something that you sign a lot of books with. So if you're at a book signing and someone hands you a book to autograph, a lot of times you put two words, go deep in the book. (laughs) And I would love to know what the significance of go deep is in your life.
1: Well, it has to do with looking at something and taking the view that it's simple and you can quickly grasp it and figure out how to deal with it. When in reality, most things in the world are not that way. Most things in the world are very complex. There's a, a, do you know who Elmore Leonard is? He writes writes sort of uh, detective mystery kind of books. And he said, there's a mile of wire in a screen door by which he means it's more complicated than it looks. And so when I wrote Deep Survival, well, let me back up a step. I first became interested in survival when I was a young journalist and I was doing research about airline crashes. So I've always been interested in aviation. My dad was a pilot. I've been a pilot most of my life. And as a young journalist, I would see these airline crashes and I would think, wait a minute, this doesn't make much sense. These guys are really well-trained Many of them are ex military, they've got tons of hours. And then the NTSB, which investigates airline crashes, National Transportation Safety Board, they come out with a report that says pilot error. The guy drove his plane into the ground. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How how come how come this guy's so smart and he did such a stupid thing, if that's really true? And so I would ask them, Well, you know, this guy's got thirty thousand hours, he's got a master's in engineering, he had 30 years in the military, and now he drives his plane into the ground. How do you explain that? And they'd say, well, we don't know. He's dead. We can't interview him. And so this started me thinking about, okay, there's more here than meets the eye. I need to to investigate these things and go really deep into my research to find out what's really going on. And that's why go deep is something I put on the book sometimes, uh, because deep survival was an attempt to explain that why do smart people do stupid things and and i think in deep survival one of the things that made people like the book was they were kind of having these aha moments like oh yeah so that's what's really going on so that's what that means
0: you you mentioned aviation and your father i would love if you just tell the miraculous tale uh because when i read this in your book i was blown away
1: (laughs) yeah well when I was a little kid, you, you know, you find out your dad was in the war and you say, well, what did you do in the war, dad? He was a B-17 bomber pilot with the Eighth Air Force near the end of the war. And uh, he was shot down. It was the second time he was shot down, actually. <laughs> the first time he managed to get the plane on the ground. The, the second time he was shot down, they blew his left wing off. And uh, he was at 27,000 feet. And he was not able to get to his parachute. He was supposed to be wearing it. But of course, none of the guys wore their parachutes on the airplane because they're very uncomfortable. So they'd stick them under the seat or something. And the plane was spinning so hard that he was not able to get his parachute and wasn't able to get out. So he fell 27,000 feet without any support. The plane was spinning so hard that it actually broke into pieces. And his piece was the cockpit. And he rode that down. It had the aerodynamics approximately of a bathtub. And he rode that down 27,000 feet and somehow survived. And, And we don't know why he survived. He broke just about every bone in his body. He was very badly injured and was an invalid after the war for a couple of years while he recovered. But he recovered fully and went on to have a career as a scientist. He went back to school. He got a Ph.D. He had seven sons. He was a very successful guy um but that story of survival was something i heard as a child and it was like wait a minute yeah. everybody was killed but my dad how can that be hmm. what makes people survive well as i say i don't think we know what made him survive but it started my interest in the idea of survival
0: we're going to get into survival but i would love to know did your father being able to to recover from something like that, did he have a certain approach to life that you've just admired over the years? Yes, yes.
1: The, the The first part of his approach to life was it's a big joke. Everything's funny. He was a clown of a of a good sort. He was a very smart guy, but he was also extravagantly um, entertaining. And his, his buddies in the military over there in England when they were flying these missions um, sort of looked to him for entertainment and literally one of his buddies who flew with him uh, was a cartoonist for Disney. And he he went to war and then came back and continued to work for Disney. And he drew a cartoon of my dad, which is like a, a figure from the um vaudeville with a hat and a cane doing a dance and it was just this, this cartoon of my dad and that's how he was he would come in from work at the laboratory at the medical school where he worked and he'd come in the front door and grab a cane from the umbrella stand and start doing like a soft shoe dance across the house to entertain us <laughs> his attitude I think well, it was even before he was shot down. this was his attitude, but that life is just a party. <laughs> and he was also a very serious scientist. so he was he was a deep guy, a, a deep guy, and I learned that from him.
0: What is your approach? what What underlying philosophy do you do you feel you embody most?
1: i think I think it's from him. I'm not as much of a clown, I don't think as him, although I like to joke around, certainly. But what I got from him was that, like I started to say initially, everything is interesting. Mm. When you look at something, it's really more complicated than you think it is. And if you look closely enough, everything's interesting at some level. And if it's not, if you find that you're just bored by something or draw a blank, you're not looking closely enough. So that's been my life of researching for the things that I write is I'm always looking at what's the next level. You know what else is going on here that I don't quite see yet and how can I get a deeper understanding of this and that came from him he he believed that um so when I was about I think I was about eight years old when I first saw him lecture he did a big lecture course on histology at the medical school there's like 300 students because it's a required course and so I come in he, he lets me come to class one day and I come in and sit down And he gets up on the lectern and starts his lecture by saying, fellow students. And afterwards, we went out to lunch and I said, Dad, why did you call them fellow students? You're not a student. You're the professor. And he said, well, because I believe that you should be a student all your life. Mm -hmm. And even if you get your PhD and all that, you should still approach life as if you're a student of it. Mm -hmm.
0: That that constant curiosity certainly rubbed off on you. I know you brought that up in in the early days, getting interested in aviation and survival. um, You could see that that curiosity came through. That's something you seem to have had at an early age. Looking back now, you've had a tremendous amount of life experience. What do you wish you knew 40 years ago?
1: (laughs) Oh, gosh. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I... I think 40 years ago, let's see, when would that be in the 80s? I I wish I had known how fast you can absorb knowledge, because I think I was a little intimidated even then um, by the size of certain books, so, you know, I didn't know anything about geology, and I had this geology book, but it was like a thousand pages, it was huge. And it, I, I considered it to be like, I'll never finish that. But I discovered later in life, and I did ultimately read it and learn geology. Um, I discovered later in life that I really could plow through this stuff and I really could retain it. And I think I wish I had known that earlier, because for this book that I just finished, I had to read the equivalent of, you know, getting a PhD that much stuff. To, to do the research for it, and it went very well. It just took a while. So I think I was just much more impatient when I was young.
0: Just to someone listening to this, I mean, I'm sure their ears perked up, they can absorb knowledge and learn and retain it at a greater rate. What do you do that helps with that?
1: Well, I read all the time. I mean, my wife makes fun of me. because <laughs> I, I have to read so much to know what I'm talking about, that I literally read all the time.
0: Hmm. And um, How how do you read? It's making me think of the the great Emerson line. He he reads like a hawk hunting prey. How do you approach (laughs) your reading?
1: Well, so I have a son who's 20 years old and he's in college now. We were talking about all the reading he had to do. And I said, most people who don't know how to write will write according to a formula. And the formula goes like this. I'm going to tell you what i'm going to tell you then i'm going to tell it to you and then i'm going to tell you what i've told you and so i said if you read the introduction and the conclusion first you'll have a pretty good idea of what's in the middle and then you can kind of pick and choose in the middle by you know the way people were taught in school to write which is not a very interesting way to write is you have to you know state your thesis in the first sentence of each paragraph so you can literally read the first sentence of a paragraph and kind of get an idea. So if I'm reading, a lot of the work that I have to read is scientific work and it's badly written. And so it follows this pattern that I'm talking about. And so a lot of times I can go through and read the first paragraph, a chapter, and know what's there. Then yeah. if something is well-written, I'm lucky and I just read the whole thing because it's enjoyable.
0: Hey guys, it's Sean, and we are about to dive right back into this episode, but before we do, i wanted to take less than a minute to tell you about my online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, over the years, I've personally coached CEOs, executives, and professional athletes, and I've interviewed over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, and my course, You Unleashed, compiles the most important routines, mindsets, and skills that you need to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, you will learn these things over 19 video lectures that I'm going to teach you in this course, and you can find out more about the course by heading to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed, or you can click the link below. Now, that's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. We're going to dive back into into your research, your writing process a bit later, but I want to dive back into into survival because something you just said a second ago, you said there's patterns to this learning to your reading. And it makes me think, earlier you were saying, you got really interested in why smart people do stupid things. You said why smart people, not stupid people, why smart people do stupid things. And so I'm I'm wondering, all these accidents, are, are there certain patterns to these accidents?
1: Yes, there are. Excuse me. So usually these accidents begin with some kind of misperception. Um. That you're not you're not really seeing things the way they are, um, and so your plan of whatever you're going to do is slightly askew already, because you don't really understand what you're looking at. Sometimes things just break, you know, like in an airplane. Um, one of my books that was published in 2014, I think, is called "Flight 232" about a, an airliner crash, and the uh, the engine exploded. I mean. This was not something that the crew had control over. An engine exploded. So there you go. Um, But many, many accidents are a series of small steps that people take, starting out with the wrong step based on a misperception of something. Mm -hmm. And in, in deep survival, I talk about a number of cases like that. But if you look at accidents of all different kinds, you find that they tend to have a pattern. And they tend not to be one big thing, like an engine explodes. They tend to be a bunch of small things that come together to make the accident. And so it's often not stupidity. It's, it's a smart person who just has a misperception.
0: Then what have you found in the, and maybe you haven't come across this cause you've researched the people who actually fall victim to this. What about the people who are able to catch themselves earlier in one of those initial steps to not let that spiral? Are there certain things they do? Yes.
1: That the beginning of learning is admitting that you don't know. And so to have an attitude toward the world that you have something to learn and that you, are, that you have some humility about what's out there um, is the beginning of getting smart. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a lot that goes on in our world, and this is the subject of the book that I just finished like the Army Corps of Engineers straightened the Mississippi River because they looked at the Mississippi River and they thought this would be an awful good river if only it were straight and a little deeper and we could put barges on it. Well, that's not what a river is, first of all. Rivers meander for a reason. Um, But they straightened it anyway based on this simple idea and their attitude. These are... Army Corps of Engineers, these are West Point people. They're, they're, they're trained to know. They're not trained to ask questions. They're yeah. trained to say, I already know this, and I'm going to do it and get out of my way or I'll run you over. Um, and that's an invitation to disaster. And the Mississippi River is a disaster. It's a huge ecological disaster as a result. Um, and so if you want to approach the world and not be a smart person doing stupid things, you have to start by admitting there's a lot that you don't know and you better look more closely before you take a big irrevocable step.
0: Certainly approaching things with that beginner's mind. Uh, Speaking of the mind though, one of the things I love about your work and appreciate so much is the depth that you go to to understand how our brain works and how we can use that for, for more benefit and also to avoid some disaster. So what do we need to know just high-level understanding of how our brain works to put ourselves in a better position to make better decisions?
1: So the, the, the short version of this is that the brain wants to simplify everything. And so I always use the example of my granddaughter, Cece. By the time she was one year old, she knew how to identify all dogs. She would not look at a goat and think it was a dog. She would not look at a dog and think it was a goat. She knew everything that there was to know about dogs, whether it was a Chihuahua or a Great Dane or a Poodle or a Pit Bull. She always knew it was a dog. And the reason that she did that, was able to do that at such an early age, is because of an area of the brain called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is something that does this it takes a little tiny piece of information and it gives you back the whole thing so for example in ancient times let's say you were going through the forest and you saw uh, a stripe hidden by some bushes and you identified that it was a tiger and you ran away this is a good thing for survival all you needed to see was that one stripe and you immediately knew there was a tiger there and this is how the hippocampus does its work it's also a, a part of the memory system we have. And once you create that mental model, let's say in Cece's case of the dog, you have all dogs, you don't need to spend time figuring out what a dog is, you instantly recognize it from any little part of the dog that you're going to see no matter what the dog looks like. And you'll always have that, then it becomes difficult to start differentiating to make subtle differences. So once you make the mental model, you can dismiss the world and go about your business. That's what the system tells you. It tells you you already know as much as you need to know about this. Continue on. So this this leads to systematic errors. For example, if Cece grew up with friendly dogs all around her, she might think that all dogs are friendly. And that might lead her later in life to approach a dog that's not friendly and get bit. Because she has this mental model of what a dog is. So the mental models are not simply visual identifying things. They also have emotional valence. They'll tell you if it's good or bad. Um, And they fit into patterns of behavior as well. So you take the mental models and you do things with them that I call behavioral scripts in my books. For example, teaching a child how to tie a shoe. It's a very difficult project. I've gone through several grandchildren now doing this. And uh, it's hard. You get a four-year-old, try to teach him to tie his shoe. It takes practice over and over and over and they can't get it and they can't get it. And meanwhile, they're manipulating these mental models. They know what the laces are. They know how to tie a knot maybe even. They know what the shoe is. And finally they get it. And when they get it, a very interesting thing happens that shapes our behavior through the rest of our lives. You take a task that requires all of your attention when he's learning and turn it into a task that requires none of his attention. So once he gets it, he never has to think about it again. It, it turns into an automatic action. And we're all familiar with these automatic actions like uh, serving a tennis ball, hitting a golf ball, um, you know, pitching a baseball. And for most people, driving a car becomes one of these automatic actions, which is not a good thing. But we all are familiar with, if you've been driving a car for a while, you're probably familiar with, like I got all the way to the grocery store and I don't know I don't know where I was looking even. It just was like on automatic <laughs> pilot. Well, not, not so cool, eh? But, but we do that. And so all of our, everything we do, everything we learn is subject to this automated system and it's dangerous depending on where we are so that's one of the keys to starting to manage your behavior in the world in a in a better way is to be aware that the system is operating all the time and kind of slap yourself awake now and then and say hey pay attention
0: the, the people who are able to do that—to to slap themselves, to, to pause the, that little—that little moment there, that little gap between stimulus and response—is—is is there anything you've come across that the people who've developed or cultivated that ability?
1: So I'll tell you a story. <clears throat> um, I don't know if I put this in any of my books or not, but there was an FBI agent who decided it was a good idea to learn to snatch a gun out of an assailant's hand. So he decided to practice this. Because what if somebody pulls a gun on him? If he could take it away quickly, he'd end the scenario right there. So he practiced and practiced and practiced, and he became good at snatching a gun out of somebody's hand. And sure enough, one day, he was on the street with his partner, and some bad guy pulled a gun on him, and he snatched it out of his hand. A- and then he gave it back. And, and you're like, wait, wait, what? Of course he did, because that's how he practiced Change it. He trained with his partner, snatching the gun and giving it back and snatching it again, and he got very good at it, but he forgot that the part <laughs> the part where he gives it back is not the, is not the good way to end it. Mm-hmm. Um, what that tells you is that you get what you practice. Now, we're all practicing all the time for something. We're just doing it unconsciously, and we may not know what it is we're practicing for. So if we take little things in our life, that we do all the time and do more conscious practicing, let's say uh, you're stuck in traffic because you live in a city and cities have rush hour. What do you do with that time? Do you pound the steering wheel and honk your horn and yell at people? Or do you sit there and say, I'm stuck in traffic because I live in a city. I think I'm going to listen to some classical music or study French or something, you know, other than blowing your top then you become more used to staying calm in stressful situations. And when a real stressful situation evolves, you may be better at staying calm. And so there are all kinds of junctures in our life where we can practice being more adaptive consciously. Then when an emergency comes out, like the guy pulls the gun, you have a plan and you have a practiced action that you're going to go to. And it's not going to be be the wrong one.
0: What about in the in the scenarios where s- the stress is real, where someone's walking in you know, a leisurely hike and all of a sudden a bear pops out. <laughs> is, is there any technique, is there any strategy there to to, to remain well, cool?
1: Well, as I say, you get what you practice. Yeah. And so if you have practiced remaining cool in the smaller stresses of life, the chances are much better than when a bit that when a big one comes along, you will stay cool. And so it's it's a matter of learning to regulate your own emotional system as a habit. So, you know, <laughs> when, my, when my daughters were little, when they do something like spill milk at the kitchen table during a meal, I would say, that's okay. Everybody spills things once in a while. Don't worry about it. We'll clean it up and we'll get you another glass of milk. I wouldn't yell and scream or throw a fit or say, why did you do that stupid thing? I would just practice with them. All of us are going to stay calm together now. We're going we're to look at this as this is part of life. Yes, the planet Earth does have gravity. That's why things spill. Uh, and we're going to deal with it. It's part of reality. And we're going to do what we need to do, and then we're going to get on with it. And I noticed they're grown up now, and they have their own kids, my grandkids, and they do the same thing, Hmm. which I think has led to a much happier household than the one where people yell and scream. And so if you develop that as a way of life, that remaining calm, chances are very good that when the bear jumps out, you're going to remain calm and, and do the next right thing.
0: Yeah, you've got that great line. In the moment of emergency, you're going to do what you've done before. Um, back to the, the yes. small things become the big things, and you can handle those scenarios based on, right. on what you've done in the past. So, something you, you've talked about before is emotional priming. And I would love to know what it is and the role it plays.
1: Sure. So, let's say you're um, <clears throat> let's say you're getting ready for a trip, and you got to go to the airport and catch a plane, and you're a little late already. So you're kind of rushing. And you and your partner are trying to get packed. And you're rushing around a little bit. And you stub your toe really badly on something. Now you're emotionally primed, you're in pain. This is a physical thing. Emotion is a physical thing. You're in pain, you're in a hurry. Now you're irritated. And you're much more likely then to blow your top if something goes wrong between you and your partner they're packing like God damn it yeah. where are my ties? Um, <laughs> that you would that you wouldn't necessarily react that way if you hadn't had the already the priming of both being late and stubbing your toe and so forth and so on So anytime you add an emotional level to something you make the next emotional level more likely. Hmm. And so again it's a matter of practice too of learning how when things happen like that not to react
0: we've talked a lot about emotion kind of in in the negative sense but one of the things i've been fascinated around for a number of years is these superhuman feats of strength and i know you write about this and i forget if it was one of your friends who ends up moving this 500 pound rock off himself but i would just love to hear because you're so wide read. What do you make of these moments where someone can lift a car off another human being or lift a 500-pound rock off themselves? How are they able to do that?
1: Yeah, the person who did that wasn't somebody I knew. It was somebody I talked to, though. Um, So our musculature, the muscles of the human homo sapien's body, are roughly the same as a chimpanzee's. Little size difference, a few tweaks here and there, but it's roughly the same musculature. And so it has roughly the same strength, um, leaving aside things like training. And I'll never forget when I was a kid in my father's labs, there was an animal lab uh, down the hall. He didn't work with animals, but one of the other scientists did. And they had chimpanzees there, and they had truck tires in the chimpanzee cage. And I saw this chimpanzee pick up a truck tire, like from a semi, and go like this, you know, just for fun, squeezing it till it collapsed. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, that's, that's a pretty strong a- animal there. Well, we have, we have the same musculature as that guy, um, but we also have something that chimpanzees don't have, which is called the neocortex, a part of the brain that does the systematic thinking, step-by-step stuff that we do, I call it the IKEA brain because if you go to IKEA and buy a piece of furniture you have to follow these instructions to put it together and it's like step by step if you follow the instructions you get a piece of furniture out of it and a chimpanzee could never do that. We're the only animals that can do that. Um, But that's the way the neocortex works. It's this kind of systematic stepwise part of the brain that does planning and logic and it does one other thing, too, which is it puts the break, puts the brakes on the emotional system and the body's strength. So it is the restraint that keeps us from being strong. So if you went out, I said, now I want you to go out to the parking lot and lift your car up, you wouldn't be able to do it. But in fact, I, I know a woman who is um, actually a, an in-law of mine who lifted the car off her father after an accident. She is this frail little 95 pound woman who has always been frail and 95 pounds. This was in her younger days, but her dad was driving and rolled the car. They went into a ditch and the car was on him and she picked it up. It was an old fashioned Oldsmobile from the 1960s or something. So it had to have been 3,000 pounds. Anyway. I think it was a boat. <laughs> And, um, yeah, it was one of those old boat-type cars. Um, So what happens is the sudden emotion turns off the neocortex. It, like, throws the switch and releases the strength that you innately have, but you can't get to it because there's this off switch in the neocortex. And that's, that's why that happens, and that's how that happens.
0: I'm so fascinated by by all of this, so many of the stories you bring up, but you've uncovered just hundreds and hundreds of stories throughout all your years. Is there one that sticks in your mind as just most miraculous or or one that just still blows your mind?
1: Oh, I think it's my dad. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) 27,000 feet. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, I I still, I still think about that to this day. but I mean, all of these stories individually, the, the stories like in Deep Survival where, uh, what's his name, Steve Callahan is adrift for 76 days, I believe it was. You know, that's really an amazing story. And and uh, I give Steve credit for writing his book because that's where I stole the story from. But, um, but, you know, as he did each day, he did each day like it was sacred, mm. like He was in a little crappy raft that they give you when you go to a survival store. They really is not meant for what he did with it. It's not meant to last 76 days. Um, And the raft was falling apart around him, and he was constantly mending it. And he would tell himself, don't hurry, make it right. You have to do it right this time or you're going to die. So just take your time, be very calm, and do it right. And he had this kind of mantra of... Of approaching his days like they were sacred tasks and it got him through all the way through 76 days of this drifting and um and in a way i think we all could benefit from a little of that Hmm. that to live our lives a little bit more mindfully and realize that we are here uh on a contingent basis we (laughs) we don't have a contract with God that says you get to live to be 90 years old, so take it easy. You know, at any time, we do these crazy things like driving on highways. You know, if you invented the automobile today, it would be illegal. Imagine it, going to a government body and saying, I have a great idea for an invention. Uh, It'll pollute the world, use up all the oil, um, and kill only 32,000 people a year in accidents. What do you think? and they'd be like, are you nuts? Nobody would <laughs> Nobody would do that. Um, so we live in this world where there are all kinds of possibilities around us for failure or death even. Um, and yet we live as if there's no tomorrow. And Steve Callahan, certainly for that 76 days that he was adrift, lived each day knowing that he had to do things right to get to the next day. Mm. And I... You know, you can't be paranoid all day long, but you can certainly take a little more time to think, how am I doing, you know? How am I doing in this little raft that I'm afloat on through my life?
0: Yeah, I think it was the the actor Michael, Michael Loudon said, he said, I wish I knew every day I was one day close to my death. I would have lived a little differently. Uh, it makes me think about focusing on some of those yes. things you were just alluding to. Well, one of the things that I, I, I was really intrigued by in, in a lot of your work and the writing, of some of these stories, is the little little tricks, I'm, I'm gonna use the word tricks, of what these people did with their brains. I think you mentioned one person who might've been lost in the woods, and they would count every 100 steps and dedicate each yeah. step to a new person. And I, I'm just yeah. wondering about the the importance of kind of these, these little mental tricks you can play during moments like this that can be really helpful.
1: Yes, well, going back to the brain for a minute, there is a circuit in the brain that some neuroscientists call the rage circuit. Some of the neuroscientists don't like the idea of using the word circuit because it's not a computer, you know. but, but the rage pathway, let's say, through the brain, which goes through certain organs and certain areas of the brain. And everybody's familiar with this. All you have to do is have the experience of stepping on a cat's tail, and you see the rage circuit in operation. The claws come out, there's a scream, the fangs are bared. There's a struggle. That's the rage circuit operating uh, the way it's supposed to, which is to get you free of a predator. You know, if a cat catches a mouse, the mouse is going to struggle and and make a noise too. Uh, and so this is a natural part of all of our makeup. Um, the trouble with it is that it's connected to memory. And again, there's survival value in that to remember what, is harmful Um, and you can wind up with things like PTSD as a a result so if you activate the rage circuit too much it may stay on or it may become hypersensitized so everything sets it off. Uh Um, There's another circuit that runs through parts of the rage circuit that they call the seeking circuit or the seeking pathway and you can see this in a cat's behavior too when a cat is stalking prey, it gets down low to the ground, it becomes very quiet and methodical and goal-oriented and directed. And you can't have both these circuits working at once because if you have the rage circuit going, you're gonna scare the prey away. So you have to turn off the rage circuit, turn on the seeking circuit, and then you can get things done. Well, I, I tell you all this because this is in part what the guy doing the 100 moves was doing he was turning on the seeking circuit. so the story is he was um, he was skiing cross-country skiing in Grand Teton National Park and he broke his leg. he took a bad turn and did a spiral fracture of his leg so it was badly broken and he couldn't walk and he couldn't make a crutch out of anything that he had so he had to figure out how to get himself out and what he figured was he had to scoot along his bottom, and that's how he came to dedicating every hundred moves to something in his life that he loved and wanted to get back to. His wife, his dog, his guitar, anything to think about. Why do I want to get back to my life? These are the reasons. Mm-hmm. So he had given himself, first of all, a motivation that he could believe in. And secondly, a method of setting up that, that seeking circuit to turn on Because the seeking circuit responds to patterned, rhythmic, directed activities. You can't be having the raid circuit going off while you're stalking the bird. So things like knitting, for example. Knitting is a very common activity to turn on the seeking circuit. It makes you feel good. Or playing a musical instrument. Or jogging. Or whatever your favorite activity is.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of uh, going for a swim or another methodical type of workout that really puts me into this, this incredibly enjoyable, almost subconscious level thinking state um, yes. that, that I try right. to get to on certain days. But, but you, you mentioned the seeking. This has me think about what you brought up around fear. And you said it's not lack of fear that separates the elite performers from the rest of us. They're afraid too, but they're not overwhelmed by it. They manage their fear. They use it to focus on taking correct action. And it seems like that's really one right. of the key things. They're really they're they're process-oriented towards the future. They're they're literally moving forward with actual action. Is that, is that one of the key things you found in these survivors? Yes.
1: Yes. Almost everybody except sociopaths experiences fear. And it's kind of how you use it that 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 matters. If you let it paralyze you, it it descends into panic and you can't do anything. If you use it as a A source of energy and again this requires you to do practice this in your life uh it can be very motivating to be afraid i'm sure that the guy in grand teton national park with the broken leg was afraid he had five miles to go to get out and uh was scooting on his bottom um and so yes learning learning to befriend fear and make it work for you is important, and it's not, it's not an easy thing to learn, but it can be learned, and the people who are successful at it are the ones who tend to get out. Hmm.
0: You said learning that's not easy to learn. What have you found in all your years is one of the hardest things that most people struggle with learning? They, they could read it in a book, they could hear it again and again. <laughs> but for some reason we we just have a tough it's, time to learn again. It.
1: It's hard to learn not to react. So our tendency is to take reflexive action. That and and this again is a survival thing from our ancient history. You know, you see the tiger, you run away. But to take to take a pause and think for a moment is an extremely useful habit to get even in situations that seem like emergencies um, it helps to learn not to reflexively react to to everything and most of us live in pretty um, non-threatening survival kind of situations we you know i live in a suburb i have a house Uh, i have a backyard i have a car Um, I have a coffee maker, all these things, you know, I, I don't, I don't have predators. So it's very easy to become complacent and learn just to live without thinking. But I find that not only can you become a much better survivor by learning to think consciously, but then if something does happen, you're much more prepared for it.
0: Hmm. I mean, and so
1: so. Is- stopping to think yeah. is is what i would say
0: and even what it seems like you were getting to there is saying i mean most of us i'm assuming listen to this podcast are, are living in a pretty comfortable scenarios we're, we're not f- experiencing deep-seated actual fear every day based on on an animal coming at us but like you say in the book all of us are going to experience trauma at some point there's no escaping it and so in your your other book that i, I just love um surviving survival you talk about the ability to to be resilient and understand it and I'm wondering resiliency as a whole, in the people that you've researched or interviewed, the ones who are most resilient, do they have a similar, a similar background or psychological makeup or do they come from all different backgrounds? Um, basically, there, there's no specific pattern to, to their resilience makeup.
1: You know, the backgrounds are so diverse that it's hard to characterize them. Um, there are, there are certain people who have had so much trauma in their life that it's it's hard to see them as resilient because they're suffering
0: mm.
1: and and i think part of resilience is learning to experience joy again or never to stop experiencing joy mm-hmm. but in in surviving survival i talk about the the rage circuit and the seeking circuit that we've been talking to and people who are resilient tend to be able to figure out something they want to do to turn on the seeking circuit they tend to be able to figure they tend to be able to find someone who's worse off than they are Hmm. to help so if you find someone who's worse off than you are and help that person suddenly you go from being a victim to being a rescuer so you're now on top of the equation. Instead of having something happen to you, you're making something happen for someone else. And it gives you a kind of power that's very healing. Um, and so it becomes almost a given that if you, if you go, like let's say you go and you seek out a, a psychotherapist who deals with trauma, you're probably going to find that that psychotherapist was traumatized hmm. somehow. Because that's who wants to do that job.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: And 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 you kind of have to take that role yourself. Doesn't mean you have to go become a therapist. But I mean, if you're able to give back in some way, it's very helpful, very helpful.
0: Is this from, I, I know at the, the end of your book, you do a great job encapsulating some of the, the big lessons and your rules for life. And so is this part of the one-it-need-it-have-it? Um,
1: yes, I think so.
0: I, I'm just trying to think. You, you, you want something, you're going towards it, your forward motion, then then you you need it. So you, you're finding someone who needs this, what you can give them. Um, yeah. I, I'm just wondering if that's part of the process there.
1: I, yes, I think it is. I think it is. And you internalize what's going on, and it becomes part of you. Hmm. And that becomes part of the healing process that you undergo. And it's healing is maybe the wrong word because so people who study uh, memory are beginning to think that you remember everything that goes through your senses, you store it, but it's not necessarily conscious, but that it stays there in a permanent way. Hmm. And so forgetting is just. Forgetting isn't really forgetting, forgetting is just putting something out of the realm of conscious thought. And it can be there, it can come back. And this has been demonstrated by people uh, who've been held in prison camp in isolation and start to remember all kinds of things from when they were uh, less than three years old. Usually parents will tell you, he's not going to remember this, he's only two, You know, he, he'll forget all that. Well, it's not really quite that way it seems. It's it's just that certain things get pushed under the surface and they can come back. And so part of part of this healing process, if you want to use that word healing, is to create new memories that that make you feel good or powerful hmm. and that can help you through what you have to go through.
0: Have you come across anything that that age for children, that the three, four, early fives, around why it's that period specifically? I'm asking because I'm I'm really interested in this. I've, I have a four-year-old son, and I've even noticed in the last year, he he asks me again, like he forgets certain experiences. Where I feel like when he was three or late twos, it was almost like his world was so small he remembered everything, and I'm starting yeah. to realize that things that even happened six months ago, he doesn't fully remember where in the past that would have, that didn't seem to happen very much. I'm wondering, is there something about that, that brain at four-ish? Um, are there changes happening, and that's why? And that's why there's usually memories that get pushed down that we don't remember past that age? So there's
1: you're, you're in an area that's very fascinating and that has not, unfortunately, been studied very much. Um, there has been a long history of discounting uh, what children are all about And one of the big areas has been in memory. Um, So children, little children, and this is starting before birth, have tremendous memory. They take in everything and they literally remember everything and can store a huge amount of information from a very early age onward. And, um, And something happens around that time that three to four to five somewhere in there something happens where a lot of memory falls into an unconscious realm Mm. And, and it's believed now that it doesn't go away it's just no longer accessible to your conscious mind you in effect start to develop a new kind of memory which could be called um episodic i think it's like do you remember that we had your birthday party last week yes i do Do you remember your birthday party last year? Yeah, I sort of do. Do you remember your your birthday party when you were two? Well, no, not really. Except you do. Hmm. You do remember it. It's just not there for, for you to grab onto consciously. So it's a fascinating area of study that's not getting enough attention right now. But since I have been doing all this research for so many years, I've been able to experiment with it with my grandchildren and see how very much, how very powerful their minds and memories are from an extremely young age, Um, that they just have a grip on things that, that adults don't usually give them credit for. And I would always encourage parents with young children to let them test their limits. I mean, so with my grandchildren, all of them, I have taught them from an early age about physics seems like a subject you wouldn't introduce till high school right but little kids can really understand physics so if you take um a one-year-old and you say here's a coin if i drop it which way will it go will it go up or will it go down a one-year-old can tell you that gravity right so Any one-year-old can learn that. Another thing they can learn is thermodynamics. All of my kids knew thermodynamics by the time they were one and a half. Why? Because they eat mac and cheese. You take the mac and cheese out of the pot and you mix the cheese stuff in and you put it in front of them and you say, it's hot. Be careful. It's hot. But in a minute, it'll be cool enough to eat. So just give it a minute. And why does it do that? Because of thermodynamics. <laughs> and they can all say the word thermodynamics. They have no problem with that. And then the next time, you know, a couple of days later, you serve mac and cheese again, and they'll say, is it hot? Yes, but don't worry. Thermodynamics will take
0: care of it. <laughs> well, th- this has me thinking what you were saying a minute ago around it a lot of people are thinking now that we remember everything. Um, this embodied memory, uh, are you familiar, or do you remember the Tetris experiment? I, I know I've heard you talk about this or you wrote or you've written about this. Do you know what I'm Which referring to? the Tetris experiment?
1: Oh yeah. Tetris. Sure. 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 Can yeah. you share
0: this? Because I think this is such a yeah. clear picture of this.
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll preface it with another thing though, before we talk about Tetris. Um, Which is that a friend of mine, a scientist named Robert Sapolsky, who has written some wonderful books, among them, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, um, told me that his father, when he was old, suffered from dementia. He couldn't remember if he'd had breakfast this morning. Um, But he could stand up, and and he was a professor in college of architecture, and he could stand up and give a 10-minute lecture on the history of flying buttresses, word for word the way he had done in college when he was teaching. And then half an hour later, he could stand up and do it again, word for word, because he had this memory in a part of his memory that was still okay. And so we all have different kinds of memory. And in the Tetris experiment, they took uh, somebody who could make no short-term memories and taught him to do Tetris on a computer with the little key, the arrow keys. And he, he learned it. And then every day he would be introduced to the keyboard again and wouldn't have any idea why he was there because he had no short-term memory. But if they put his hand on the keyboard, he'd know how to play Tetris. And then as the days went on, he got better and better at Tetris. Even though every time he showed up in the lab to play Tetris, he couldn't remember what the game was called. He couldn't remember (laughs) that he had been there the day before. So there's this whole realm of memory that is separate from, do you remember that we had your birthday party yesterday? Hmm. It's a completely occult part of memory, and it's where things go when you practice them. Um, And so the tying of the shoe that I mentioned earlier, when you teach a four-year-old to tie his shoe and he can't do it at first, when he figures out how to do it, it goes into that occult part of the memory, and that's where it's stored. That's why he can do it without thinking about it anymore. And so we all have these and again, I refer to them as behavioral scripts, it's like your grandmother used to play accordion, but now she can't remember if she had breakfast this morning, but she can still play accordion. Yeah.
0: How does all of this factor into your writing process? All of these 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 unconscious memories and thoughts, do you think about that? Do they, do they have an impact that, that you like to put focus on or attention to? <laughs>
1: Yes, there there are two parts of of the writing process. Um, There are many parts of the writing process, but I'll talk about two of them to start with. One of them is completely unconscious, and it comes out of this area of the brain that we're talking about where unconscious things are stored, and nobody knows anything about that. I mean, if a scientist is telling you he understands that part of the brain, he's He's blowing smoke up your skirt. It's not true. Um, we don't know anything about it. What we do know is that great things come out of it unconsciously. And there's a story that, I don't know, did I tell this story? I can't remember now if this is in one of my books, but there's a famous chemist named Kakuya, a German chemist who discovered the uh, structure of the benzene molecule. He was trying to figure out benzene which is basically gasoline. Um, And he couldn't figure it out, and he couldn't figure it out. He was very frustrated. And one evening, he was at home trying to do his work, sitting in front of the fireplace, and he dozed off. And as he went to sleep, he saw the image of a snake eating its tail. And he went like, of course, it's a ring. Benzene is a circle. And he figured it out. So this unconscious heart of the brain gives us great gifts at time. And many, 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 many scientists, artists, et cetera, et cetera, talk about this process that Kakuya went through when he discovered the benzene ring, often in between waking and sleeping, or certainly while you're doing something else uh, that you're not thinking about the problem. You're taking a shower or a walk on the beach or whatever. Um, So part of my writing comes from that people at the Santa Fe Institute refer to this as the night shift it's what happens when you're not paying attention and so you when you read my next book you'll see passages in it that seem very poetic that's where those come from um i don't sit down and say i am now going to write a poetic passage so there are other But there are other elements in my writing because it tends to be about science and the brain and all that stuff. And those I have to do much more deliberately. I have to get my research together and get it organized on the desk here. And I have to go through it systematically and and write it up. And that's a much more... And you can tell when you read the book the difference between the two. One is much more deliberate and methodical and straightforward. And Mm -hmm. the other is much more, you know, a flight of fancy. And so, so those are two big parts of of the writing that I've always been aware of. When I started out as a writer, I was very young. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I wanted to be a poet. So I wrote, I would stay up all night in coffee shops and write bad poetry. And, And as I got older and learned more, I realized, I wanted to be a scientist too, but I really what, what I really wanted to do was write about science in a way that was poetic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is, I think, one of the things that makes people attracted to books like Deep Survival. It's both. It's got science in it, but it's readable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's what I've tried to do with, with my career is to be a, um, a translator for the layperson, to understand some of this science and make my books readable by introducing this poetic element in them.
0: Well, you've done a fantastic job with that. I've greatly admired and enjoyed your work over the years. Um, You mentioned the Santa Fe Institute. I'm pretty sure I first became aware of you um, through a mutual connection, Michael Mobison. Um, Oh, sure. Yeah, Michael's a good friend. Yeah, Michael got me into your work, and I'm I'm glad he did, because I know it had a deep impact on him and and very deep for me as well. I'm wondering, who have been some of those authors or some of the books that have had that type of impact for you?
1: Well, so when I was a kid, um, I was still in high school. I read um, Catch-22 and Cat's Cradle. I also read Faulkner and Hemingway and all that. T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden. Um, I read a lot. I read a lot of things that tended toward the poetic and the absurd, hmm. and they kind of gave me a, a sense of what could be attempted and what could be allowed and permitted. Hmm. And, <laughs> but I tell this story. I don't know. It, if this is in one of my books, I don't think this is in any of my books, but I learned a lot from my mother. So my mother was a very straight Catholic, Irish German woman from St. Louis. Go to mass every Sunday, you know, receive communion, that kind of thing. And she... Was also very driven by artistic values, let's say. So when I was a kid, fairly little, she would read books to me that she thought were good, like "The Wind in the Willows," is a wonderful children's book. Um, but there was another book called "Archie and Mahidebal," which was the the conceit was that this newspaper man comes into his office one day and finds a cockroach jumping up and down on the keys of his typewriter writing a column. And this is the column. And it was published in the newspaper called The Sun, New York Sun. This is around 1916 that these columns were published. And they were collected into a book later on. But it was this cockroach doing a column, and it was all about current events. So in 1916, there were, you know, all these political things going on. They were just discovering um, the Egyptian tombs, for example, and Tutankhamun and all that. So there was a lot of stuff about uh, mysticism and uh, reincarnation. It was also a time when uh, free verse poetry was being was popular and. So there's lots of this, this cockroach writes in free verse poetry some of the time. And my mother would read me these columns and they were all just wacky, completely wacky. And there's a cat named Mahitable who's an alley cat. And you get to hear Mahitable's adventures in the alley. Um, And she sings, Mahitable sings a song that has the lyrics, what the hell, what the hell in them. My mother would never say the word hell. She wouldn't say the word hell, even if she were talking about hell. But when she was reading a book, she would say it because it was in the book. And I thought, this is great. I can swear if I'm in a book. (laughs) (laughs) Freedom is represented by writing a book because you can get away with murder.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In terms of, of your writing, when did you finally feel that this was actually something you were very good at?
1: I can tell you exactly. So when I um, so I I was brought up to be a scientist by my dad. And when I finished high school, I went to Northwestern University in what would have been pre med, if I had stayed there. And the idea was that I would go to school and either become an MD or PhD and, and do science. Um, But I dropped out of school after one quarter and ran away with a rock and roll band this would have been 66 65 66 yeah 66 um and i stayed on the road with a rock and roll band for a couple of years and it was it was great fun it was the 60s it was all happening um i was a, an accomplished musician anyway i had been playing since i was a kid but i realized i didn't like the the life i mean it, it it just didn't appeal to me, sleeping in a motel with nine guys I didn't really know, um, and traveling the country. And I was not a natural musician. It was not my, it was not my seeking circuit. Um, but it was fun for a young young guy to do. And so then I came back to Northwestern and got back into school. And I was looking, you know, how do I get back into college? And how do I, what do I take? And Looking at the catalog, and one of the courses that was offered was writing. I think it was called composition. But it was basically a course where you go in and you write short stories. Okay, I thought, well, I know how to do that. So I took that course. And when I wrote my first short story, the professor came to me and said, I want you to enter this in the contest we have here at school, because I think you're going to win. And I entered a contest, some endowed contest that the English department had and I won a thousand dollars and it was like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) That's all. That's really all right. I think I'll do that again. And this professor really was instrumental in encouraging me. He, he found a bunch of uh, contests for me to win. I won them all. And then I started getting published in small literary magazines. Um, And I thought, you know, I can do this till the wheels come off. And that's, that's, I never looked
0: back. I was going to say the wheels are still rolling. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I always love hearing stories like this. Just the, the impact one person can have. on another Yeah. I trajectory. wrote to
1: him later in my life. Uh, this was probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I found, I tracked him down and wrote to him and told him that um, because he really did make a huge difference. I, up until that time that, that I did that with him, I wasn't sure. I mean, I didn't know, you know, I'd sit in my room and I'd, I'd write all the time, but I didn't know, was it any good? Was it nonsense? You don't know until people start reading it.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I certainly enjoy your work, so it's definitely persisted through today. But but one, one thing I, I want to close on here, um, we were talking about trauma and no one escapes it. Um, in your book, Surviving Survivor, you end with this passage that I just really enjoyed. So you mention your son. Your son's name is Jonas. You say, Jonas sat in the back. You're, you're on a drive coming home from, I'm pretty sure it was the beach one day. You said, Jonas sat in the back reading a book. Debbie, who's your wife, sat beside me, strong, thriving. I felt it then, that tremendous rush of gratitude, that overwhelming sense of the beauty all around us, and I asked her, how did we get so lucky? She looked at me and smiled and said, as if it were the most obvious thing in the world, we went through all that bad stuff to get here. I would mm-hmm. just love if you could expand. I thought that was absolutely beautiful, but I, I just love how you bring up to to be able to feel that that deep connection, that deep fulfillment. It ne- you we need were talking about that.
1: We were talking about that today, and we talk about that a lot. So I just turned seventy five in December and um, you know, it's kind of a turning point, a psychological turning point. Um, and I was very happy that I had just finished this book that I've been working on for so long. Um, and we've talked, we've talked a lot about this lately. Like this morning we were sitting at breakfast and she said, I, I waited all these years just to have this. And what she meant was we were just sitting there at breakfast. There was nothing particular going on. She was reading the paper. I was reading a book and, um, and it was quiet and we had food before us, which not everyone in the world does. And we have just developed an attitude of gratitude. It just is amazing, especially if you. she likes to read the newspaper. I won't read it. It's too disturbing. But, I mean, if you look at the world and you think, "How how did we get so lucky to be here? I'm sitting here, you know, it's... It's noon here, it's one o'clock where you are, and I'm thinking, what am I gonna have for lunch? Not everybody gets to make that decision. Yeah. Not everybody gets anything. And so to live in a, in a state of kind of amazement at our good fortune is part of the deal. I mean, if we can't save everybody in the world, at least we can appreciate what we've got going in it um, and be grateful for it and try to help others. And so that, that really is a big part because the book you're talking about, Surviving Survival, is about being resilient after trauma. And part of that resilience is, well, the trauma's over. The, bad, the trauma's over. The bad part already happened, right? So now you're sitting here and you're calm and you've got an orange in front of you and you're going to eat that orange as if you were sitting in the desert hmm. because that's how good it is. And if you see all of your life with this kind of a view of how wonderful it is, you'll just be much more resilient
0: in every way. That's beautiful. Lawrence say you could do this long form interview, sit down, just ask endless questions of someone who, who would you love (laughs) to do that with?
1: I'm thinking through um, 600 years of history. Epicurus. Why is that? Epicurus was one of the early, not the first, but very early proponents of a theory of the universe that said there is nothing but atoms and void. So he was one of the earliest data points we have on looking at the universe in a scientific way. Um, the word Epicurean has come to mean something that it, that doesn't really refer to him and, and doesn't really reflect his way of life. It's come to mean something luxurious and fancy and perhaps overindulgent, but he didn't live that way. Epicurus lived very modestly um, and he would invite friends over and have very modest meals. But, but his viewpoint in life was that when you die there's nothing your atoms go back to being atoms there's no soul that goes on into heaven or something it's it's over it's done so the only reasonable way to live life is to enjoy it just like what i was saying a moment ago to look at your life and say this is really great um you know i am really lucky i'm having a great time here not to extravagant lengths or something, but just to appreciate what is life um, and and to give yourself permission to enjoy it, not to work yourself to death, not to covet what other people have, but to give thanks for what you have. And Epicurus was near, near to the beginning, not the exact beginning, of this kind of thinking. Um, and so, yeah, I'd really like to know. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Lawrence, speaking of of appreciation, I appreciate you, your work, two of the books that had a massive impact on me. Your first, Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why, and then your other one, Surviving Survival, The Art and Science of Resilience. Of course, I know the listeners are going to be intrigued by these. That will be linked up in the show notes, as always. Anything else you want to leave the listeners? Where can they stay connected with you? Where can they check out your work? And I know they're going to be intrigued by your upcoming book you have coming out. Go deep. Here we go. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Lawrence, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.